0: Caesar Chavez, who said, If you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you the food give you their heart. We are Baptists, and another way to translate Baptist is we like to eat together. The church has been meeting meals together since Jesus broke bread with his ministry. More significantly, we put into practice this meal that Jesus brought the disciples together known as the Lord's Supper or as communion. For many of you, you grew up in a tradition that might have called it the Eucharist. These terms are really synonymous with each other. Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. Communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means community or fellowship. They're describing what this meal is about. As the early church began to practice this meal, it's funny, though, because outsiders of the church completely misunderstood what they were doing. In fact, the early church to the outsiders were viewed as cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their God. You can understand why that might seem a little weird to outsiders. For, for some of us, we grew up in a tradition where we view these elements as something theologically significant. Theologically, this term is called transubstantiation. We view this as the body and blood of Christ. For others of you, you can't quite say this is the body and blood of Christ, but you grew up in a tradition under consubstantiation, meaning that the spirit of Christ is reflected in the elements here. And Still, for others, grew up in a tradition where this is a symbolic act. So what I want you to do is take out a number two pencil, and we're going to have a quick pop quiz on what each of those three terms uh, mean. But what if communion is not necessarily about our theological understanding of the doctrine around it? What if there's something more significant to us? For this, let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 7. What if I told you that what's most important about the stance of the Eucharist is the way that we approach it with humility and in community with others? The text reads, Then the the day came of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owners of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now the context of this passage is quite significant. Jesus and the disciples are converging on Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover it's the most widely celebrated of all Jewish holidays. It commemorates the biblical story that we find within the Exodus. If you remember, Moses arises, called forth by God, tells Pharaoh to let my people go. Yes, everyone heard that with and Heston's voice in your head. Pharaoh resists, so God sends these plagues, and the tenth and final plague is one of complete devastation. It says that an angel of death will pass through the Egyptian community, killing the firstborn of every child. And the Jews are... Instructed to paint the blood of a lamb over their doorpost so that as the angel passes, it will pass over them. So the Passover celebration was to commemorate every generation after who experienced the exodus. The, the Passover celebration was not just a simple meal, it was quite complex. They had specific arrangement and dishes that they brought forth this meal. Most of us grew up in a household like this of some sort. Our families had specific things we did to prepare uh, and and prepare a meal. Uh, You had to clean the house when guests came over. There was a specific way and specific dishes that you set out. Anyone grew up in a family that had an entire china cabinet full of dishes that you never actually touched? They just collected dust? For some reason, you don't actually use the dishes to eat on. You just let them sit there, and collect dust in all their purposefulness. I don't even—I don't even have a word to come up with what properly describes what happens in that china cabinet. Um, uh, when I was in Sri Lanka for a summer, I learned by mistake that the host family won't actually eat a meal until you are—have uh, you finished the meal? And what I learned after a couple weeks is the food that's on the table is not just your food, it's also their food. So here I was just like filling my belly full of food and I actually was eating their food too, uh, to which that was met with a lot of guilt. Anyone have Christmas dishes growing up? Because you eat those like the one time of year. As a kid, I remember getting caught uh, eating cereal out of a Christmas bowl. Um, The table is set, the napkins and utensils are put in a special place. I hate going to a restaurant where you have five forks and spoons and you're not really sure which one to start with. So the Passover meal, there was a specific hour to eat the meal, sundown before the Passover. The meal would consist of some specific foods, roasted lamb and bitter herbs and other specifically cooked items. The meal would have not been carried out haphazardly. There would have been special prayers offered, symbolic words said. And so Jesus sends Peter and John to go and prepare for this special meal. And the disciples prepare. They're coming into Jerusalem for something they don't understand is going to be significantly more. You see, the Passover meal was not complete without a lamb, which would be sacrificed for one's family sins. On the eve of the Passover, someone from the family would go to the temple. They would offer a lamb, not to be graphic, but the lamb's throat would be slit. The blood would be caught into a cup that would be poured out on the altar to be burned. The lamb would have been taken back to the family's home to be roasted for a meal. The disciples didn't know this at the time, but they were preparing to offer a different sacrifice on this Passover. In verse 14 it says this. When the hour came Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table. He said to them. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal. Before I suffer. For I tell you I will not eat it again. Until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After the taking the cup he gave thanks and said. Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you I will not drink of it again. The fruit of the vine. Until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread. He gave thanks and he broke it gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. If we are honest, this conversation just turned a little awkward. Here the disciples are enjoying this Passover meal together, and then all of a sudden Jesus turns things really serious, and completely changes the mood of the room. Talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it sounds like something from a horror movie. But Jesus is preparing them for something much more significant. He says that, I will suffer in this Passover. Jesus is brilliant. He, the words he uses there to suffer is eerily similar to Passover, which is the word pasco, pasca. Passover is about preparation. Jesus is preparing them. He is preparing himself. He's preparing the world for the suffering that he will endure. Instead of a Passover lamb that will be sacrificed for the sins of a single person or a single family, Jesus is giving his body, his life as a sacrifice for us. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And so this meal turns into something more. He is forecasting of what will take place. He is giving them hope that God is fulfilling God's promises. He is inviting them into community with God through his sacrifice. And so he takes this Passover meal, blessing it and passing the cup and the bread, and he turns it into something astoundingly more. And so this table, this table is much more than we can put into words. The first thing this Eucharist table teaches us is that we must give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for Jesus' sacrifice. It is in breaking of the bread and passing of the cup that we remember Christ's body and blood that was broken and shed for us. My friend Carol McIntyre so eloquently put it this way, communion is a living parable. The body and the blood language associated with the bread and the wine are naturally linked to Jesus' death. These words are reminders that Jesus died a violent death on a cross killed by the powers that ruled the world. And so we gather around this community table. We do so with unspeakable gratitude towards God. We give thanks to God for the hope that is in humanity through Christ, enough to come and to walk among us, to literally become flesh and dwell among us to be in our presence. We give thanks to God that God did not think God's self above us, that God could not come in a humble form of a servant. We give thanks to God that God remains among us through God's Spirit that reminds us of all that Jesus taught us and empowers us to live out the work of the kingdom of God. And we give thanks to God because it is possible through Jesus' breaking of his flesh and shedding of his blood that we might walk with Christ. And so we come to this table as an act of thanksgiving. But the Eucharist also calls us to settle our hearts and minds before God. Peter so beautifully put it this way in 1 Peter, For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Through him you believe in God, who raised him up from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you might have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. You see, this act of remembrance at this table brings us to a place where we prayerfully ask God to forgive, to give us power to change. To transform us into something better, into something more loving, into something more gracious, into something more holy. This Eucharist meal calls us to settle our hearts and minds on God, that God might lift us up to become something different. Do you examine your heart before you come to this table? Are you grateful for the sacrifice of Christ? Are you challenged to become more like Jesus? Does the sacrifice of Christ bolster you to become something more humble, more of a servant? The table should humble us. It should remind us that salvation doesn't come by our own hands, but by God's. It brings us to a place where we recognize and embrace and follow Christ into something more. As one author put it, In my life, If my life could be understood as a meal of many courses, and let's be honest, most of it actually was, then I finished the starters and I'm limbering up for the main event. So far, of course, I've made a stinking mess of it. I've spilled the wine, I've dropped my cutlery on the floor, I've sprayed the fine linen with my meat sauce, and I've even spat out some of my food because it didn't taste the way I think it should be. How often do we approach this sacred meal with all the mess of our life shoved off to the side? When Christ is inviting us to bring all of ourselves, our baggage and all to this table of fellowship. For it is at this table that our hearts and our minds are transformed and renewed through Christ's grace. In September of 1973, General Augustus Pinochet took over in a coup d'etat of the Chilean government. And after taking power, the Pinochet regime, um, for the first couple of years, um, intimidated, killed, and tortured thousands of people. People began to disappear, never to be seen again. Or if they were tortured, they were tortured in such a way they had no physical way to show on their bodies, but they were tortured mentally. Can you imagine having a family member taken, disappearing, and never see them again? Thousands upon thousands of people. How do you respond if your family or friends or fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are missing? This is the question that the church and its leaders begin to wrestle with in Chile. At the time, uh, church membership was tremendously wrapped up in, in one's life, and so the people of Chile viewed their church and, and the God as, as keeper of their souls. So church members were viewed as something far greater and far more significant than just being a member of some local body. You, this was part of your life. This was part of your citizenship. So with this deeply rooted theological understanding within each person, the church began to respond. How do you respond when members of your church are knowingly torturing and murdering other members of your church community? Well, the church responded to excommunicate the torturers, to cut them off from communion and fellowship of the body. The church began to teach the people that if you were torturing and murdering Chileans, you are actually torturing and murdering Christ, the members of Christ's body. So if you are a part of the body and you are doing these things, Try living outside the graces of this community and the body of Christ. And as crazy as it sound, it started working. May we be challenged to see that the body of Christ is called to unity and love. This table that transforms our hearts also calls us to reconcile all wrongs with each other. And this is such a familiar message within the church. It's become so part of our vocabulary of forgiving one another that we've tuned it out so much that we actually don't embrace, reconcile, and forgive each other's of our faults. Christ teaches us in his teaching that before we come and make an offering to God, we must reconcile our wrong with our brothers and sisters. May this table also remind us of the unity and reconciliation that are vital practices of our journey with Christ. But we must also remember that this Eucharist is an act of community. Remembering this meal took place between Jesus and his disciples... The language that he gives this is in the plural tense, not in the individualistic tense. Yet we live in such an Americanized Christianity where the culture screams, it's it's about me, it's about taking care of me, it's about getting me what I deserve, that we forget that the church is an act of community together. The great Anthony Bourdain said this, "...meals make society, holding the fabric together in lots of ways that are charming and interesting." The perfect meal or the best meal occur in the context that frequently very little to do with food itself. It's about being together. You see, this faith that Christ is inviting us into is is not a journey that we take alone. It is a journey we take together as a community. Therefore, this act is an act we participate together in community. As we were preparing to move from North Carolina to Louisiana, about Five months ago, Rebecca Odenwall asked me how the church can best help us settle into this area. And I don't remember exactly what I told her, but I told her something along the lines of spending time with y'all would help to make the transition easier. Well, if you know Rebecca Odenwall, then you know she took my simple words and turned it into something brilliant, because that's who she is. And with the Pastor Found team, Rebecca put a, a, a plan into place to help us transition by having you as a body, uh, sponsor or host us for a week in June, July, and August. So for three months, you all signed up to care for us through handwritten notes, through coffee visits, through inviting us into your home for tea, bringing us meals or taking us out for dinner or showing us around Baton Rouge. You made us a part of this family by opening your tables and your hearts. You made these outsiders feel the overwhelming hospitality of inclusiveness through the simple act of sharing yourselves with us. Since the Eucharist is a meal of community, we must also model the ministry mentality of Jesus by opening this table up for all people. The meal that Jesus had with his disciples was just a continuation of all the meals that Jesus had in his public ministry. And boy, did Jesus love eating meals with prostitutes and tax collectors, diseased people, social outcasts, political and religious rivals, and so-called sinners. And so, as if it wasn't controversial enough, Jesus broke bread with Thomas, who would deny his resurrection. Peter, who would betray and deny Jesus in his most dire hour. Judas, who would commit the most despicable act in human history. We need not leave this place missing the world-altering fact that Jesus used a meal to break down all social, religious, and political boundaries. Did Jesus not eat meals with the most vile of society? Did he not rival and butt heads with those who would restrict those who were saying, you cannot come to God's table? Why then would we restrict who can partake in the community of Christ? This table is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. In communion, an ordinary meal is turned into something sacred. We read in the book of Acts that all people, of all religions and all incomes and all races, began to gather and break bread with one another, and Christ was present among them. For there is no race or political allegiance economic status, sexuality, physical attributes, self-righteousness or self-loathing, completely overwhelmed with brokenness and sin, or pursuing righteousness in God, all are welcome at God's table. If Jesus used a meal to break down walls, what is stopping us from using a meal to break down the walls that we create in our lives? You see, if we are not consumed with self-righteousness, but thanksgiving, a God-centered heart, a humility of Jesus' sacrifice, it's easier for us to open our table to other people. So may we be a community of people who actively invite others, not just to this table, but to our tables out in Baton Rouge. There is a place at this table for all of us. And since there is a place at this table for you and for me, this table is an invitation for us to go out and open our tables, our homes to all people. Mahatma Gandhi said, There are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except in the form of bread. So may this table remind us and empower us to be the body of Christ in the world. May we be a beacon of hope and love and grace and peace and transformation may we take the message of God choosing his own brokenness to save our fracturing to give us wholeness through Christ there is a place at this table for all if you will join me in your bulletins we have a responsive invitation to the table this morning This table is for all of us. This table is for all of us, but it is not our table. It's God's table for all of us, and it is a table of grace. You are welcome. You are invited. You are called. Amen. As we just read from our text, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, he gave thanks and said to them, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it together, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he says he took the cup, he poured it, and said, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me. Today is World Communion Sunday, as if you haven't got that, because we've said that 5,000 times now. It's a significant Sunday where churches across the world are recognizing the inclusiveness of God's table. And so we come to the table this morning, and we're going to do it a bit different than any other way we've ever done it before i know all the introverts in the room just died inside wondering what's next Um, instead of having the deacons come down and hand you a plate and give you the words of institution we all are going to come to the table we have a special bread uh, made by deb McElgin this morning it's called morning gory bread and it helps us remember that christ doesn't give us something empty but Christ fills us with nourishment that we need to empower us. So what you are invited to do this morning is to come and take a piece of the bread, a whole chunk of it, not just break off a tiny bit. Take a whole piece and take a cup and we want you to walk around this space this morning and you're invited not to not just look down at your feet and consume the bread but as you partake in this meal, go about you. And pass a word of blessing on to another person. Pass the peace, pass a word of love, pass a word of hope and encouragement. And so we take this meal as an act of community together. Blessing one another and sharing with one another. We all are going to come down. Yes, Balcony, we invite you to come down here as well. And we'll all come to the table partaking in a piece of bread.